Well, again, good morning, everyone. I am so glad that you're here. So if you uh, weren't here last week, we started this series, Marvel at God, and we, st- we were marveling at God in creation, right, where we look and we see these incredible designs in nature. They're unavoidable. They are not the appearance of design. They are actual design. There's ingenuity and planning in nature. It's awesome. But now we turn from nature to human nature, and we ask ourselves, is there anything to marvel at like we looked at outside and at creation to look at uh, human nature and ask if there's anything to marvel at there. And in fact, we do find that very thing. In fact, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, kind of waxed on about this in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. He said, yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has, now get this, he has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. What a beautiful idea. This idea that you look inside the human soul and you get a glimpse into eternity. That there's something inside of humanity that is an indicator of something from the outside. So here Solomon is clearly tapping into the idea, right? That that people are made in the image of God. It is uniquely in the world and in the created order, God's stamp on us. So now the question is, in what way are we like God? Because that's what the Bible is implying, this eternity idea, the idea of God's image inside us. In what way are we like God uniquely in all the animal kingdom? Well, people will point to different things. They'll point to our rationality, and that may be an indicator of eternity and the image of God, because our rationality is in a completely different order than anything else we see in the animal kingdom. But animals do have problem-solving ability. Uh, Other people point to language. And again, our our ability in language is abstract, and it's an order of magnitude, just completely different order than anything we see in the animal kingdom. And yet, it seems that people will indicate one other thing that really separates us, and that is morality. That when you try to define what is the, the sense of eternity that comes in from the outside, and you see it in human nature, it's morality. The Bible teaches that that moral law is a piece of the eternal divine nature that has been planted on the inside. And we observe this moral law, and we observe it in people, and it doesn't seem to matter where they lived or when they lived that you find it. It's everywhere, and so it's universal and it's instinctual. It's like it's what it means to say So now, what do we mean by universal moral law? What does that mean? That means an inner compass that tells us what behaviors are right and which ones are wrong. We mean that powerful, at times almost overwhelming impulse, that instinctual belief in oughtness. Now, oughtness is an important idea because, of course, it tells us what behaviors ought to be obeyed and which behaviors ought to be disobeyed. So this idea of oughtness is an important concept to define as different from merely what helps me, what behaviors are expedient, what behaviors make me feel good, what behaviors might benefit somebody else. That's a different idea than what behaviors I ought to do. Because very often the behaviors that the moral law tells you you ought to do go straight against the behaviors that benefit you or somebody else or make you feel good. So it is really important that we understand the moral law is that that sense of oughtness, a conscience, in other words. But here's what else we find out about the moral law, right? Universal moral law is unlike natural physical laws in this way. 
you can break moral law. You can break moral law, right? So try breaking the law of gravity sometime. See how that works for you. You know, that does not work real well. Try to make light go faster or slower than 186,000 miles per second. Go ahead, try that, see how that works. That will not work. You can't break that physical law. Try to eliminate the law of inertia. Try to take an 18-wheeler traveling 70 miles per hour and make it stop on a literal dime without applying an equal and opposite force to it. Try it. Just try it sometime. Go ahead and cut it off on the and you're going to see exactly how, how uh, flexible is the physical law of inertia. Not very. But unlike uh, natural uh, law, moral law can be broken. In fact, that's why we call it moral, right? Like, so if you were forced to obey a law, like forced to obey physical law, you wouldn't say that you were moral for obeying it, right? A person who is a moral person because there's a freedom side of human nature to obey or not obey. You wouldn't be moral. You're not a moral person for obeying physical laws, right? Uh, you'd be just, you're just a computer. You're just sort of running a program. Do we call a hurricane morally evil because it crashes into the shore? No. Do we call the sun morally good because it warms our bodies? No. These are just physical things running according to physical, natural laws. By definition, they're amoral. So without even looking into religions, without even cracking open the Bible this morning, AC3, here's, you can just know this right out of the gate. You can know this about moral law. Number one, you can know that the laws are not things that we have to do. They're things that we ought to do. And then secondly, we can learn that we disobey the very law that we affirm. The very laws that we say we ought to do that, and then we don't do it. And that's universal. That's around the world. This is so intuitive, friends. This is so universal that people don't even think about it. They don't, they don't marvel at it the way they should. You should marvel at this, friends. You should marvel at the universality of this law. You should marvel at the objectivity of this conscience, which is in every person who's ever lived, and it doesn't matter when or where. But we just take it for granted. But it's there. It's informing the debate you had with your spouse last night. You call on the moral law to win the argument. Now, I hate to bring up this election cycle again, but it's also a perfect illustration. Morals, right, were sort of a key issue in evaluating our two main candidates. And let's just be honest about the, the, the names and the, the behaviors that were be ta being tossed around. Some said that Trump was a racist, sexist, homophobe. Some called Hillary a lying, cheating crook. And they argued and argued and argued, right? And I know, I watched your Facebook feed, right? So, so we were arguing, right? We, we, we spent a lot of time, and you might look at the polarization of it and the arguing and the vitriol and the poison and, the, and all that stuff, and you might say, we, could, we couldn't agree on was morals. I say Absolutely not. That's the freedom. You say, no, wait, what do you, how can you possibly make the claim? Here's how. Because amidst all the arguing, friends, the argument that you never heard, never once, no one ever made the following argument. Who cares about racism and sexism? It's good to prefer people of your own race and to despise people of another race. That's good. No one ever said that. Not a single person ever made that argument. No one ever said, you know, Treason, lying under oath, selling public office for money is good. Treason is good. It's desirable. It's ethical. No one ever made that argument. We all agreed across the board on those things. Instead, we argued about how the Z 
accusation of bad behavior either wasn't accurate or it was less bad in comparison to about the bad behavior, we were agreed 100% about what constitutes bad behavior and what doesn't constitute bad behavior. We were agreed about those things. We agreed that natural law exists. We agreed that it's good to obey it. We agreed that it's bad to disobey it. We merely argued about uh, when to apply it and uh, about um, when it was uh, not applicable because the bad behavior in question wasn't actually true. So what's interesting about this, friends, is that this is um, uh, what's talked about in the Bible over and over again. The Apostle Paul will talk about the universal conscience, and he will say it is the glory of God in the human soul, that, that, that it lives there and that it's universal and that there's this amazing agreement about it is evidence for God and something truly to marvel at. And by the way, it's true, Paul says, regardless of your religion, and regardless of your training, and regardless of um, uh, where you live. Everyone just knows it instinctively. Here's what he said, Romans chapter 2, verse 14. So, when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even do not have the law. He means the law of Moses. They have no religious training in Mosaic law. But they are a law for themselves. They show, verse 15, that the work of the law is written on their hearts. That's the law. Conscience testify in support of this, and their competing thoughts either accuse them or excuse them. What's a great way of saying, you know, that inner conscience, uh, that prompting is either saying, hey, good work, or no, 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 don't go there. God has put that in us. That is a word, friends. A word is a language. He has put inside of you a moral language. You could call it a code of conduct, and the code is universal because Jews feel it and Gentiles feel it, and it doesn't matter when or where you lived or what religion you had when you grew up. Paul is saying that conscience is revelation. It's powerful revelation. When you come to this place, you do realize that the moral law is a powerful set of evidence for God. The natural law, friends, it's a marvelous thing. It's so marvelous that people are regularly converted into the Christian faith because of its reality. I'll just give you three examples here this morning that I think will stir you and maybe inspire you. Scientist Francis Collins. Some of you know him because he led the Human Genome Project in the 90s, which mapped the human uh, genome. And uh, he's a, he was a devout atheist until the age of 27. He's now a committed Bible-believing Christian. Why? He says, the argument that was most surprising, most most earth-shattering, most life-changing is the argument about the existence of the moral law. How is it that we and all other members of our species, unique in the animal kingdom, know what's right and what's wrong? In every culture one looks at, that knowledge is there. Changed him, turned him. Then you, you all know about uh, literary professor C.S. Lewis. He was an atheist hard-baked until he was 28 because of what he called, quote, the unfairness of the universe, unquote. So his whole argument against God went like this. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? And so the answer was he was comparing the universe 
injustice inside of it, the unfairness, the badness, the wickedness. He was comparing it instinctually to this moral law that he believed was out there somewhere. In fact, his argument for atheism hung on the existence, the objective existence of that moral law. How else was he going to judge the universe as decrepit and bad in some way? But that's when he woke up. That's when he realized that he was faced with a startling choice. One was to believe that the moral law was as meaningless as the universe. In other words, it was just another part of the random dance of atoms that was going on. It was just another chemical state in the brain. But this he could not accept. He could not accept that his conscience was an illusion, essentially. A chemical state in the brain made by nature to make him feel a certain way with no tethering objectively to some standard out there. He couldn't accept it. But that means he was left with only one other choice. And that was simply this, that the moral law was so impulsive on him and so, uh, so forceful on him because it came from a moral law giver. And in that moment, he was converted. There's another example of this. Novelist, screenwriter, and commentator, Andrew Clavin. He talks about the impact moral law had on him in his excellent book, The Great Good Thing. He was raised as uh, a Jew, but at it, after his bar mitzvah at the age of 13, he just said, that's it, I'm flushing it. Flush. He knew that the faith of his fathers was all bunk. He just left it behind. But then he said he turned hard into selfish living, and by uh, age 28, he says, I was a disaster. Life was out of control emotionally and cruel. Then there was an interesting turn, not a turn to Christianity. Interesting. He went through psychotherapy and greatly improved. His, his success markers in life, relationally and career-wise, just improved. And so he said to himself, well, Freud must be right then. And so he knew that Freud was something of a, a harsh atheist. He turned to atheism. He started reading atheist literature and finally said, that's what I am. There are no gods. There is no meaning in life. There's no life after death. There are no spirits. And there's no meaning. So he started reading and getting into his chosen life philosophy. But the more he read, the deeper, deeper he dug, every atheist that he had seemed to stop short fully owning the philosophy. In other words, Atheist he read, while a champion of rationality, and he loved the commitment to science and reason, seemed to somehow stop short of fully owning the implications of their atheism. And they seemed disingenuous in some way that he could not identify. He kept going for years until he was 42 years old. And finally, he read an atheist, and the ballgame changed. He read uh, Marquis de Sade. Now, some of you read the Marquis. And if you have, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. But uh, is where we get our word for sadism, which is to get pleasure out of inflicting pain on other people. And the Marquis apparently explored this whole way of living. The Marquis de Sade um, basically uh, started to unpack his atheism, and Clavin started to realize that here, for the first time, was a fully consistent atheist. For if Marquis, Marquis de Sade, um, he said that to truly live without moral law, in other words, without God, is to do what nature tells you to do. And what nature tells you to do is to have pleasure. And to have full pleasure, nature tells you that you must do it at the expense of others. You must. And so the instant 
that he realized this, that this was the only perfectly consistent atheistic position, boom, he was converted. That was the moment he knew that God was real. He said, I knew then that moral relativism was wrong. I didn't care if everyone on earth says it's right, it's still wrong, and that's the only leap of faith I ever took. You know, as I read these conversion stories this week, Ace and Drew, my mind went straight to Psalm 19, the Psalm of David. We last week, the heavens declare the glory of God. In other words, the, there's marvel in God in creation, but then skip down seven verses, and here's what he said. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So here's the testimony of David, that this law of God is something that converts you, it changes you, it enlightens you, and it's something, friends, to marvel at. I marvel at this, and you should too. See, by its very nature, listen, by its very nature, moral law is universal and objective. It revives the soul, it converts a person on the inside, and as we're going to see next week, it leads a person finally to God's ultimate solution to the moral problem. So the moral law is this amazing thing. It's this incredible thing. It's, it's universal. It's everywhere present. It's pressing on you right now. It came into every argument you had last week and the month before. It's involved in your parenting. It's involved in your worldview. It's everywhere all the time. It's an amazing thing. It's a wow. And you just said, oh, I have a conscience. Friends, it's something truly to marvel at. Truly. But now we have to deal with some objections, right? Because as soon as we say that morality is universal and objective, you know that we're running counter to the full-on stream of our post-Christian, which says morals are not objective and they are not universal, that they are, in fact, culturally bound and relative to your context, as was said earlier this morning. So we think that around the world, moral habits, we look around, we see that they're vastly different, even at times contradictory. So how on earth can they be objective and universal and therefore evidence of God? Can't be. So it's said. Let's deal with the common objection. Number one, let's realize that moral laxity does not equal a different moral code. Okay? So just because people aren't obeying the code doesn't mean that the code doesn't exist. Carl Sagan, famous atheist, as you know, noted that there was a tribe, the Ik tribe in Uganda, and when uh, uh, anthropologists studied them, they seemed to systematically and institutionally, he says, ignore all ten of the Ten Commandments. But what does that prove? What does that prove? See, let's look at American culture. According to James Patterson's book, The Day the American Told the Truth, here's a new set of Ten Commandments based on survey results from actual Americans describing privately and how they actually I don't see the point in observing the Sabbath. 70% agreed with that. I will steal from the 74% said that. I will lie when it suits me so long as it doesn't cause any damage. 54% said that. I will drink and drive if I feel I can handle it. 56% said that. I would cheat on my house. 53% said I actually do that. Uh, I, will not, I will do nothing at work about one full day a week. 50% confessed to that. I will use recreational drugs. 41%. 
I will cheat on my taxes, 30%. I will sleep around, but hey, who doesn't, 31%. So it seems that when you turn from the Ick tribe in Uganda to the tribe in America, that we also institutionally and systematically are ignoring all 10 of the Ten Commandments. Seems like all that Sagan has really proved is the universality of sin, not that moral codes are subjective and culturally bound. Disobedience to the law doesn't prove that the law doesn't exist. See? Now let's keep going because there's other objections. Uh, for example, pointing to different moral codes does not prove that all moral codes are therefore equally subjective or, e or just equal at all. Think about this, friends. Inside, let's look at, look at the values of different cultures. We can go to the famous illustration of Nazi Germany. Inside of the bubble of Nazi philosophy, the internment and the execution of Jews was deemed to be a moral good. And so you say, well, see Germany here, it's the morals are different, so totally subjective. No. Ask yourself a question. Does the fact that moral codes differ in different cultural settings mean that they're all equal? Because that's exactly how you uh, evaluate the Nazis, right? You say, wow, you know, so different moral code. All of them are therefore equal. No. You look in with an abhorrence. You look in, and here's what you do. You judge the Nazis. You judge them. By what do you judge the Nazis? You judge them by a third thing. You have the American culture, and you have the Nazi culture, and you have a set of morals, and you have a set of morals. And then you look at and apply a lens of judgment on that bubble of moral behavior, and you, you say it's either conforming to or not conforming to this other thing, this other objective thing out here, this moral law. And you appeal to it all the time. And you judge this uh, moral bubble as uh, inferior based on that other thing, that objective standard out there. By the way, friends, it's the only means by which we make our assessments. When it went to the Nuremberg trials, what was the defense of the German uh, officers and leaders? who are behind the Holocaust. What was their defense? Moral relativism. We were just doing, we we're following orders. It was just, it was right. It was, in our context, it was right. And they lost, and most of them were executed or went into prison because, as the judge would finally say, is there not a law above all other laws? Now look at it in another context. There might be corners of the world, friends, where they still believe that the earth is flat. And just because you have a pocket of people who believe the world is flat and another pocket believe that the world is round does not mean that the earth has an actual shape to it, right? It has an actual shape. We need to find that out, and then we apply that to these other versions of the world's shape and figure out which one conforms to the objective truth more or less. Here's another pushback you get. There's different expressions of moral morality, but that doesn't mean that there's different actual values. See, just because there are differences in moral practice doesn't mean that there's a fundamental difference in moral value. An example, a couple of examples. Women around the equator, historically, do not cover their breasts. But you'd be very wrong to assume by that that they have no standard of modesty. If you poll people inside that cultural context, they have a deep, deep understanding of modesty and specific rules about what constitutes modest dress and what constitutes immodest dress. The value is the same if the expression is. Some cultures have allowed for polygamy, but no culture ever thought that a man could have a woman without concern 
for marital commitment and lifelong fidelity. No culture has ever thought that. So different expression doesn't mean necessarily difference in value. Now, here's another pushback. You get different morals may indicate only different facts and not a different set of actual moral values. So, uh, for example, and this was again brought up in our drama this morning, some cultures kill witches, other cultures uh, forbid the killing of witches. But if they do forbid it, it's only because surely they don't believe in witches. For if there were such a thing, actual people who had sold themselves into spiritual evil and practiced human cannibalism, drinking of blood, killing and eating of children, as witches were purported to do, you would be a morally deficient culture if you believed that were true and those people weren't candidates for, the, for capital punishment. Right? It's only the difference in the fact assessment that causes a difference in moral difference we believe is moral or not. In Hindu India, they don't eat cows. I don't eat cows. We eat cows all the time. You guys are going to eat cow later for lunch, I'm sure, most of you. Uh, why? Well, it's because in India, they believe in reincarnation and cows may possess the souls of dead relatives. We don't think cows have souls, and so we eat them. But in both cultures, we don't believe in eating grandma. The Hindus just believe that a cow might be grandma. So again, it's a different in fact assessment. It is not a difference in actual moral value. But here we ask ourselves, really, we finally get down to it when we do some, like nobody's really, few people do an actual objective assessment of the different moral codes. And when you do, you find out that the differences aren't nearly as stark as the moral relativist would claim. C.S. Lewis, the literary historian, as you know, from the middle of the last century, looked at this, and he was, uh, because he was into literature and especially mythology, he was deeply steeped in the cultural values of, uh, of nations and civilizations, human history, and all around the world. So Norse, Chinese, uh, Rome, ancient Romans, Babylonians, uh, modern Celts, all over the world. And when he compared all of these cultures and their moral practices, amazing consistency, and he found eight commandments, if you want to, not, not ten, but eight commandments that he saw that spanned all cultures at all times in all places. I'll read them for you. This is in the appendix to the abolition of man. Number one, be benevolent to others. Commandment two, be benevolent to your family and clan. Number three, honor your parents, elders, and ancestors. Number four, care for the young and your posterity. Number five, uphold justice, fairness, and sex in private number seven be merciful to the weak bravely protect others from injustice those are universal and objective and everywhere present now other scholars have even expanded on the list one claims that there's at least 300 areas of common values around the world and yes friends even those cultures where you find that that lying or cowardice are allowed, but only in certain situations and only in tightly controlled contexts. You never find a culture that thinks that lying is awesome or thinks that cowardice is inherently awesome. You never find that. Like, friends, if you want a truth about a truly different morality, to think of a culture or world where they torture babies for fun, where when you run away in battle, they sell Hey! You just imagine that, and then you can imagine a truly different morality. And friends, there is 
no such thing. You won't find it. Do the work on this. Study it as others have. I'm gonna, I think you're going to find that there is no such thing as a, as, a, as a truly different morality. Now, finally, uh, we can probably say then with authority that there are no actual moral relativists. How can you say that? Well, just press on one. Just press on one, and you'll find that no one is actually a moral relativist. If you find someone that insists on this, and they're trying to be actually consistent, I applaud them for then just press on them. So they, they, they insist that morals are relative. Just find one of their moral values and then make a morally relativistic argument about it. And if you're talking about a post-Christian sort of uh, uh, you know, secularist in our particular context, I'll give you some candidates to use as a poking mechanism. Okay? Just start looking at um, uh, homosexual rights, female equality, or racism. So next time you hear that morals are relative, that person, well, maybe that's true. So I don't know why we have laws against racial discrimination or why we forbid female circumcision because that's practiced in a lot of cultures around the world. And who are we to impose our white Western European values on those people? And once you do that with a straight face, as if you believed it, what you're going to have is an up-in-arms friend, right? You're going to have someone who will be aghast that you could believe racial discrimination is not actually wrong. It's only contextually wrong. It's only wrong in our context, but, but it's not really wrong. It's not objectively wrong. And, of course, that moment, friends, that moment that you find their moral hot button, and everyone has one, the moment that you find their moral hot button, You've exposed the lie of moral relativism. Now they're all energized about their social justice concern. And why are they so energized about it? Because they believe that it is objectively wrong. That it is objectively wrong to gay bash, to be a racist, to be a sexist. That it's inherently wrong. It's not merely wrong because of your cultural context. They say that, expose that. They show that they believe that the moral law is objective. Subjective, personal, taste standard. But finally, let's look at how it's maybe uh, thought of through the lenses of evolution. This is such powerful evidence for God, such a marvelous, universal revelation, that atheists will often accept it. They'll just say, yes, moral law exists. But then what they'll say is, but it's merely an adaptation. And so it's explained through evolutionary theory. That is how we came to have all the instincts that we have. In the moral law, they would just say, it's just an instinct. So altruism, which for us kind of defines do altruistic behavior, that's like, whoa, that's good. That's too bad. But they would say, altruism is, is just the herd instinct operating on you. And so you have a, a selfish gene, says Richard Dawkins. And your selfish gene is wanting to perpetuate your genes into the next generation. So it will cause you to rush into a fire to save your children because your children are your genes. Right? Unfortunately, my children are my genes on naked display in the world, right, uh, for what they reveal. But yes, my children are my genes, and they're crying out to be perpetuated. And, and your altruistic behavior, all it is, 
is just evolution preserving your genetic material. Well, friends, that's a, that's a fun bedtime story, but uh, uh, two things to say about that. Number one, your genes don't think. They don't talk. Deoxyribonucleic acid, they are inert, not inert. They are non-living chemicals. They don't think and they don't morally reason. You morally There is a you that's driving the ship. And we know this because your mind is capable of thinking about ideas. And what's an idea? An idea has no chemical footprint. An idea is not material in any way. An idea is purely spiritual. And that's how your brain works. You work in the realm of the abstract. You work in the realm of the spiritual and the eternal. And your moral reasoning is part of that. But let's not deny that we may have natural physical impulses. We have the survival instinct. We have a herd instinct. We have a sex instinct. These things are instinctual, and they're impulses, and they press on us. But does that mean for that reason that that's all morality is? It's just a set of instincts that are pressing on you? No. And this gives this illustration of mere Christianity to expose the lie in that. Imagine you came across a drowning man. Now, immediately, instincts begin to work on you, right? The first is the survival instinct, which immediately recoils in your brain and says, run away, because you need to live. You need to live, and you need to perpetuate your genes into the next generation. The survival instinct acts on you powerfully. But then another instinct, maybe the herd instinct, that says, help that man, and maybe he'll help you later on. So you got two instincts that now are in off, and then all of a sudden, boom, a third thing. A judge in the brain shows up says, friend, in this moment, in this moment, choose life. In this moment, suppress the survival instinct, choose the herd instinct, and save that man. What is that? What is that third thing? Because that thing, which is judging between the instincts, cannot itself be another instinct, can it? No. Because its job is it's judging between your impulses. And it's telling you against the powerful pull of your survival instinct to say, no, today, friend, not today. Yes, survival is good, and you should cherish your own survival. But today is a day to save someone else. That thing, that voice, that judge, whatever that is, is not itself just another instinct. What is that? What is that voice that against the whole flow of the survival of the fittest tells you to help the unfit? That's almost like the definition, isn't it? Like just define morality. Define altruism. It's the impulse. It's, the, it, it's, this, it's, this, it's this moral law that imposes upon you the rightness of helping the needy, of, 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 of under, undergirding and supporting the less than fit, and I put that in quotation marks. That's amazing, whatever that is, because it's pressing back against the whole flow of the survival of the fittest. There's nothing in the, in the moral law that suggests in that direction. If you look for a moral law that would be in the flow of the survival of the fittest, just tap into Nazi morality. There you go, you got it now. In fact, Nazi morality was built very deeply on neo-Darwinism, it was. Nazi morality said that the, the, fit, the fittest must survive, and, and our, our experiments in eugenics, we're just helping evolution along. It's right. 
it's good to exterminate the weaker races. That's a morality that's consistent with nature. Meanwhile, we have this moral law that is inconsistent with, with nature. It, in fact, seems to stand against it in so many ways. It's cruelty and it's selfishness. Why? Well, I can tell you what Paul the Apostle would say. It's revelation. It's revelation from the outside. Why is there a voice against the whole impulse to procreate that would tell you that it's wrong to have sex with someone that you're not married to? Why? When it's your whole job, according to neo-Darwinism, to just put your genes in as many people as possible. That's your job, to outbreed your neighbor. Why then would the voice tell you it's wrong? Put a lid, put a cap on the sex industry. Why does that voice, uh, 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 no matter how you feel about a, a given situation, no matter at what cost to your reputation, will tell you you need to help that person at work? Why would the voice say, no, it's your job. What you ought to do, friend, in this situation is say the hard thing, and it might cost you. Why would it do that? Why would it go against that, that, that incredible flow of your instinct? Why, why does that voice against your own self-interest tell you that to give to the needy and to be honest on your taxes is the right thing to do even though nobody's watching and you'll never get caught? Huh. What is that voice that tells you to do what is right even though no one is watching? I'll tell you what it is. It is the voice of God who is God is watching all the time. The Bible is full of this phrase that says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, we think fear of the Lord, and we think, ah, trepidation, cowering in front of God. No, understand something. Fear of the Lord means a person who walks in constant awareness that the eyes of God are on him all the time. And so if the eyes of God are on me, then I walk in the fear of him the fear of the reprisal of his justice against immoral actions even though no one else sees what God sees. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And friends, here's the good news in the moral law. Are you ready? It's an answer to your prayer. Every single person in this room has cried out to God at one point in time and said, oh God, would you speak to me? Oh God, would you meet me? Oh God, would you direct me? Oh, God, where are you? And God has come to you, just like you are. Oh, maybe he didn't come to you in answer to the, every prayer you ever asked, but he came to you just the same. He came to you to enlighten your heart and to convert your soul. He came to you just the same. And when we start getting inside the moral law, we start realizing that it is revelation, it is God, God is speaking to us, then we ask ourselves, to what end? To what purpose? Because the next impulse is this. This moral law-giving God, I have offended. This moral law-giving God, I have transgressed his lines and his limits. This God who has given me the oughtness in the soul, I have done what I ought not to do. So now what am I going to do? Well, friends, now we turn to next week, and we will marvel at God. In the Christ who 
because this God who has been revealed in creation and this God who has been revealed in our conscience is leading us down the path to his ultimate solution to your problems. And that's in his grace. Let's pray now. Father, I ask, Lord, that we would have our eyes wide open to the amazing power of your revelation. It has come to us in creation, and it has come to us in our conscience, and some people in this room never saw it that way. I pray that they would wake up to it. That today they would see that when you have pressed your good and righteous impulse on our spirits, that that was you. That was you coming to us. That was you speaking to us. That was your conscience. And so, God, may we humble ourselves in front of it and realize that the God of the universe is not just an amazing artist, not just an incredible mathematician. That's what we found in creation. But, God, you are good, and you are righteous, and you are holy, and you are perfect. And so we humble ourselves, Lord, before your perfection, and we look to you the solution to our ultimate problem, which is that we have violated the very morals that you have called us to live by. And we know that you have found it now. In Jesus' name, amen. So friends, I hope that you join us next week. We wrap up this series and invite a friend. We would love to have them. Thanks for being here and for the celebration of baptism. We're not going to do extended today for the Christmas season, but I'll be hanging around for questions and answers. And if anybody wants to pray, I'll be doing that. So we'll see you all next week. Enjoy your day.